turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at hillsdale.com or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt from the West Coast. Little voice challenge this morning, but who isn't? What a game. That may be... The best Super Bowl I've seen. Now, there have been 58 of them, and I've been around for all of them, and the Browns have been in none of them, so I don't remember any Browns games very well. And, of course, Brady and the Patriots were a machine. In Montana, was a miracle worker, but that was just a fabulous Super Bowl. Even more fabulous is the moment it's over. I Not maybe the moment, maybe 10 minutes later, just as I'm trying to get ready to go to sleep because... Got a morning show to get up for and get going. I look over at the Times of Israel and the Israeli Defense Forces had rescued two hostages from Rafa, which is probably the most dangerous place in the world right now. And Rafa is where all the remaining Hamas fighters are, where the hostages are no doubt removed to. It's the southernmost city in Gaza. And the IDF went in and they, they grabbed Fernando Marmon, and Lewis Har. Fernando 61, Lewis is 70. I have put on my X feed the reunion with their family, and this proves what Netanyahu, Gallant, Gantz, and all of them have been saying. Okay, the, the entire Israeli political spectrum agrees. There are some people who disagree, but you know we're at 80% plus here. Sky-high numbers. The only way to get the hostages back is to win the war, and Israel is going to win the war. Now, I've got a lot of stuff to cover today, including the fact that Joe Biden hasn't resigned and he should have resigned on Thursday. Uh, Secretary of Defense Austin is back at Walter Reed on an emergency basis, taking their last night emergent bladder issues, which I assume means a, a UTI, but who knows. Uh, near, near mass shooting yesterday at Joel Osteen's global ministry offices, the afternoon Spanish language service. Um, a woman arrived with a long gun and a child. And the woman is dead. Child was injured. One other person injured. And that was, that could have been just terrible. But we don't have any details on the shooter yet. Uh, big story today in, in the tablet magazine by Edward Lutwak, who's really one of the great thinkers of our era. Why Israel is winning in Gaza. I will come back to that. They are winning. They will win. But when I see the next one, the New York Times headline, Biden cautions Netanyahu on ground defensive in southern Gaza, I think to myself, Israel doesn't really care what Joe Biden thinks. Joe Biden's going to have to sign the aid bill if it gets through. And if it doesn't get through, it's not up to him. He'll keep the weapons coming because there are a whole lot more supporters of Israel in the United States than there are of Hamas. And although the Hamas supporters are loud and noisy, and nobody likes 
civilian casualties. Everybody knows to finish off Hamas, it's sort of like cancer. You've got to get it all. You got to get it around the edges. You can't leave it. Oh, we'll just leave it in southern Gaza, in Rafa, with only 5,000 commandos, and then we'll go home. Because then they'll take over the Gaza Strip. It's got to be destroyed. So they're going to do that. So I don't think the president's being very helpful. But then again, he's a very old man and feeble. Well meaning, right? That's what the special counsel said. Well meaning, memory challenged, elderly old guy. Uh, meanwhile, in second place on the elderly old guy who's well meaning and a dummy is the EU's foreign policy chief. Now, you've never heard of Joseph Burrell, and no one's ever heard of Joseph Burrell, and he has no power, no authority, nothing. But he keeps making stupid statements. And he's been, I've been ignoring him, as everyone in Israel is. But he, he, he had a press conference yesterday and said, nobody else can do what UNRWA is doing. Allegations need to be verified. Actually, everyone knows exactly the proof has been there. We don't need anything else. Burrell really hates Israel. I want you to know that. I don't know why. Ukraine-Israel aid bill, along with aid for our military in Taiwan, cleared a critical hurdle in the Senate. Voting will go on for a couple more days. Big headline, Wall Street Journal. Biden has more than age problem. Voters don't see him as presidential. There was an astonishing number yesterday. 86% of Americans think Biden is too old. He should resign. Hair on fire, according to the Washington Post. Democratic worries grow over claims about Biden's memory lapses. Claims? Claims? I mean, Mitterrand? Cole? I've got a five-minute Republican National Committee tape, which I'll play for you a little bit later. And then Matt Visor, a very good Washington Post reporter, uh, basically played stenographer, which is fine. He got a scoop. The um, team Biden thought it would be important to leak to Matt Visor their side of the meeting with Robert Hur. And it doesn't matter. I've got Andrew McCarthy coming up. It doesn't matter what they think or say. They haven't released the transcript of the depot. And when they get serious, they can do that. And, uh, and so when they, they tell you that, oh, no, actually, he was great. He was fine. Nothing there at all. Nothing went wrong. That's like... It's like, I mean, if you were to interview Brock Purdy this morning and he told you everything was great last night, fine, super. You know, he puts on his game face. Doesn't change the final score. The final score of the president's deposition is an elderly, well-meaning old man with memory problems. He should not be president. We're in a war. We have no secretary of defense. We have an acting secretary of defense. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu was asked yesterday by Jonathan Carl over... President Biden's, uh, they've talked a dozen times. I like what, John, come on. What's he going to say? Israel's not going to go on and, and slam the president who flew to their side on the day after the massacre, even though he's been walking backwards ever since and now is trying to dictate war plans. He has no idea, probably, probably can't even remember who the prime minister of Israel is or what the call was about when it started. But what's Netanyahu going to say? Yeah, he's got no memory at all. He's shot. You know, it's it's not a good question because Netanyahu can't answer it any other way. But I did like what he had to say about Rafa. Cut number 32 because Israel's going into Rafa like they did last night to get two hostages. Cut 32. Well, Rafa is a, is a very small percentage of uh, Gaza, and I think it's about 10 percent or 15 percent. I mean, the estimates in the area north of Gaza that has already been cleared. Well, there's, there's an estimate of 1.4 million people in that area right now. 
And, and as the as the Germ, German that's, foreign minister said, they can't they can't they can't just disappear. Where are they supposed to go? No, well, the, the areas that we've cleared north of Rafa are uh, plenty of areas there, but uh, we are working out a detailed plan to do so, and that's what we've done up to now. We're not. Uh, uh, we're not cavalier about this. This is part of our war effort to get civilians out of harm's way. It's part of Hamas's effort to keep them in harm's way. But we've so far succeeded, and we're going to succeed again. Those who say that under no circumstances should we enter Rafah are basically saying, lose the war, keep Hamas there. And Hamas has promised to do the October 7th massacre over and over and over again. But the Biden administration says it will be a disaster if you go into Rafah in this way. And it's not just uh, the Biden administration. It's your it's your allies in the region. I mean, we, we've heard uh, from the Egyptian foreign minister that it would be a disaster, uh, disastrous consequences. The UAE is warning of exasperating uh, the the uh, the catastrophe, the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. I mean, aren't you uh, is any of this giving you second thought about going in and doing this? The answer is, John, they don't have to give me second thoughts about uh, taking care of the civilian population uh, along with uh, the provision of uh, the necessary humanitarian aid. We've been doing it, and I've been directing it systematically. Victory is within reach. It has to be understood. And victory will be the best thing that will happen, not only for Israel, but for the Palestinians themselves. I can't see a future for the Palestinians or for peace in the Middle East if Hamas is victorious. But it's so direct and... John Carl is voicing Beltway opinion there and this collectivism at work in Beltway media, which is, oh, Joe Biden doesn't want you to go into Rafa. Everybody says there are a million people there. It's going to be a humanitarian disaster. I, every cliche of the anti-Israel gang gets trotted out and Netanyahu just knocks it out of the park. Um, he doesn't know what the president meant when on Thursday night Joe Biden mumbled something about from the very beginning, the response has been over the top. Here's what he said in response to that cut 33. Well, I appreciate President Biden's support for Israel since the beginning of the war. Uh, I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but put yourself in Israel's shoes. Uh, we were attacked, unprovoked attack, murderous attack on October 7th, the worst attack on Jewish people since the Holocaust. And let me tell you, uh, I think we've responded uh, in a way that goes after the terrorists and tries to minimize the civilian population in which the terrorists embed themselves and use them as human shields. We dropped thousands of flyers. We phoned Palestinians in their homes. We asked them to leave. We give them safe corridors and safe zones. So I think we're, we're doing the right thing. And now, let me tell you one other thing. We're going to win this thing. Victory is within reach. So that, that's a great appearance by Netanyahu yesterday. Uh, Jonathan Carl. Should have asked a couple of questions far more pertinent to the situation, such as when do you expect to be done with the war fighting? I mean, you have a month in mind. But there are lots of things that could have been asked and answered. Instead, it's an attack Israel thing. But that's where Washington is right now. So they got to cover up for Joe Biden, who should resign. And you know it, and I know it, and he knows it, if he just can remember it. Stay tuned. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Good morning. Those of you who are just blearily getting out of bed because the Super Bowl ran late. And you are, uh, you, you got the Dunkin' Donuts ad on your mind or the VW ad, and you can't, you can't remember how Mahomes managed to win that thing, and Travis Kelsey yelling at Andy Reid and, and all the Swifties. It's just a mess. You're, a, you're in a fog. Okay, here's what you need to know. The most important thing that happened yesterday was not in Las Vegas. It was in Rafa, Gaza where the IDF went and rescued two of the hostages. And there is a story 
in the Times of Israel that I want to read to you. In a complex operation overnight, Israeli special forces rescued two hostages from Hamas captivity in Rafa in the southern Gaza Strip early Monday, marking the first successful extraction of captives held by the terror group in months. The Israel, Def- the Israel Defense Forces said that Fernando Marmon, 61, and Louis Har, 70, were in good condition after being rescued following an operation that involved battles with Hamas terrorists and massive Israeli airstrikes in Rafah. The pair had been abducted from kibbutz near Yatsum on October 7th. It was only the second such successful operation. At a morning press conference and an early update to military reporters on the operation, IDF spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari said, Yaman, which is an elite counterterrorism unit, I think it's in Shin Bet, not the IDF, but he said Yaman officers arrived in Rafa around 1 a.m. and, quote, carried out a very complex action on the premises and the second floor where the hostages were held. Reaching the target in the heart of Rafa was very complex. I, can't, I don't even know how they, th- this is so complex. We just played a video. If you're watching on the Salem News Channel, I want to play it again. This is a video of, of the hostages meeting their families. And so it was a very tense and touching night, uh, 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 said the um, Hagari. Such an operation was made possible thanks to the great sacrifice of the standing army and reserve troops who fell and were injured in the battles. Without their sacrifice, we would not have reached this moment. Only one soldier was injured last night, but of course, more than 225 have been killed in the Gaza operation, and 300 plus were killed on the massacre day. And there's no way that Israel isn't going into Rafah. Now, that story, which you should go read, is counterposed with the uh, Joe Biden effort to change the subject. And the Joe Biden effort to change the subject is by trying to get people to pay attention to Israel. And he called... Netanyahu yesterday, and he said, don't go into Rafa. Like, hours before they went into Rafa and got the hostages. And it goes to show that he will do anything at this point, and the White House team will do anything to turn the page. But we're not turning the page. Joe Biden should resign. I talked about that in the first segment of the show. I'm talking about it again. He should resign. I may say that every day between now and the election, because every day we are in danger of a president not remembering what he's been told and briefed on and making decisions based upon hazy recollections. And you wouldn't let him drive you anywhere. You wouldn't let him watch the kids. You wouldn't let him babysit. You wouldn't let him handle your finances. You just wouldn't. He's a nice old man, elderly, well-meaning, with memory problems. All right, we get it. He's got to go. Now, there are other stories. Matt Visor's story, and I hope Andy McCarthy writes about this. I talked with Andy last hour. If you missed it, we'll put it up on the iTunes and Spotify and Salem Podcast Network. Highly concentrated hue. Inside Biden's five-hour face-off with the special counsel. Okay, Matt Visor got a call from the White House. Said, "You want an exclusive? Come on over. We'll give you an exclusive." And they they gave him their version of events at the president's depot or interview with Robert Hur. And it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's they're, they're just trying to spin. Meanwhile, the Washington Post knows they've got to balance that out. So Ashley Parker file hair on fire. Democratic worries grow over claims about Biden's memory lapses. Claims, claims, Mitterrand, Cole. I, I, I've played the five minute video already. 
Biden has more than an age problem, the Wall Street Journal headline says. Voters don't see him as presidential. Of course they don't. ABC News released a poll yesterday. I've never seen a number like this. All right, Nixon, in August of 1974, had 23% approval in the United States. That's like as low as you could go until yesterday. 86% of Americans think Joe Biden is too old to run and, by extension, serve. And I would like some polling organization to ask Americans, should Joe Biden resign? Just that. Because it's a complicated question, because you know Kamala's behind there. And you and I don't have a lot of confidence in the vice president. I have a lot of confidence, by the way, in, in her husband. He's a very, very good lawyer, very smart. Friend of O'Brien is a friend of mine. I don't know Mr. Emhoff, but the second gentleman is very smart. So he'll help her. But I do believe that she can remember what she's been briefed on. And I don't believe the president can. And that is a national security threat. Now, I also have an update for you on the Dwayne Patterson Memorial off-ramp. I spent the weekend, fetching Mrs. Hugh and I went out to our wonderful friends, Jen and Carol in the desert, and uh, we had a wonderful thing, except for one bad thing, which I'll come back to. Well, let me start there. Generalissimo, are you there? Uh, We're showing pictures. I was trying to find the Dwayne Patterson Memorial off-ramp yesterday. You're still looking, apparently. Well, I, I, I know you went down. The fetching Mrs. Hewitt wanted to know how you did it. And I said, I don't really know. And he said, he wasn't hurt. And I said, no, he wasn't hurt. But it was at least 30 feet, right? What, what was 30 feet? The descent. Uh, probably about that. Yeah. So she wanted to know how you weren't hurt. Okay. Well, that's because I had a seatbelt on. Did The car didn't flip, though. No. So it just went over the side. And then she asked, what did he feel like at the time? And, you know, I've never asked you that. Ticked. Ticked or scared to death? No, I wasn't scared. All right. So, second, the bad news for the weekend. You want to know what the bad news is? What's Our friend Jan introduced the fetchy Mrs. Hewitt to pickleball. They went over and they played pickleball. I threw out my back. On Sunday morning, I could barely move. Well, there's a surprise. Yeah, I know, there's a surprise. I was shaving. I told Carol, it's got nothing to do with anything in your wonderful home. I was shaving. You threw I, your back out shaving. Yeah, it's you, really... Wait, you, you just said that on a nationally I know, show. and people are going to wonder, what is that? You, and people with bad backs know it's got nothing to do with what you're doing. It's just when your back decides... Does Relief Factor fix shaving poles? I'm feeling much better this morning. I came home and took it immediately. Okay, But the just question checking. is... Uh, so I didn't play pickleball myself because I couldn't move. I picked up a couple of whiffle. Do you think this is going to last because it's a problem, if it does? Is pickleball going to last? No, no. It's the fetching Mrs. Hewitt saying, this is fun. I like this. Uh, I can see her doing it for a while because I don't, I don't think she shaves much. I don't think she's going to pull anything. Well, no, she's not going to pull it. She's in great shape. She does yoga and Pilates I, I, and all I that stuff. I understand. So she's probably going to be just fine. But I'm, I'm worried that I might have to play pickleball. Will I be injured if I play pickleball? Oh, there's not a question. That's 100% certainty, right? 100% certainty. Jan said the one thing you got to worry about is falling over backwards. 
If you go for a, I, a tough I will shot. be I will be the Pentagon staffer asking the EMTs not to roll code three to come get you. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm just I'm just here to say it was a great weekend with a great Super Bowl, but pickleball has entered my life and I am not I've kept her away from pickleball. She had never seen it before, and Jan did me dirty. You are going to put your eye out. You're going to take one right between. You're going to. T- you're. You're going to be. You're going to be Goliath going down. You're going to take right. one shot right between the eyes, and down goes Hugh. You know when you make fun of me and you say Joe this way, Joe. Are you still going to do that after the Thursday presser? Because I'm never that bad. You are not that bad. However, the pictures of the Dwayne Patterson Memorial turnoff. I don't know where you think you took those pictures. I don't even know what's more scary. The fact that you had one hand off of the wheel no, to I take the driving. picture? I, I, did, I forgot my wallet, so I didn't have my license. So the fetching Mr. Hewitt had to drive. Okay, well, that makes me more relieved because you, without both hands on the wheel, I think is that one right concept. there is the one closest to the Dwayne Patterson you, Memorial. You were about him. three miles off from where it happened. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so entering that, you, you had it perfect there, boss. Why hasn't Caltrans put up a sign? I, I think they should just have a blue marker. You Why? Know those... Because I'm a Republican, and Caltrans doesn't recognize Republicans. No, but I think I, I, when I talk to the governor, which you should have set up for this week, I'm going to ask him to investigate the Caltrans dragging of their feet on the Dwayne Patterson Memorial. And you know what he's going to say? What? Hey, Joe! Hey, let's Joe. get back to the interview, Joe. All right. We'll be right back, America. Joe Biden should resign. And I will be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio out west. I want to begin by telling you we're cutting everyone a lot of slack today uh, because we know you were up late. The Super Bowl was fabulous. It went long. It went into overtime. And so if some of you, you teachers out there, if the kids are falling asleep, understand why. I don't have to worry about Andrew C. McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, uh, editor at the National Review.com, editor at large, and author of many fine books. He joined. He's now got a podcast, which I did not know about until this week, the McCarthy Report. Andy, welcome back. Thank you for joining me. You, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Andy, uh, you live in New York City, and you know what traffic is like. Would you let President Biden drive around New York City if he was, if you two were driving somewhere together, would you let him get behind the wheel? Oh, my God. I, I, right now, Hugh, I, and I don't take any pleasure in saying this. This is not about politics. It's about uh, being humane. But I wouldn't let him ride around my backyard right now. That's, that is basically it. We're talking about the president should resign. And I'm very adamant about this because it's dangerous. But the her report, which is the predicate for my going from he shouldn't win re-election to he should resign right now, uh, was discussed by you and Rich Lowry in the McCarthy report. And I, I want to salute you for walking through it, and I want to be that professional. Would you explain to us why the Her report was released when it didn't have to be released? Yeah, the regulations that control this, you, uh, the special counsel regulations in the CFR, um, they provide that the, uh, the special counsel must write a report at the end explaining his charging decisions. And it's not just a matter of, you know, trying to make an evaluation of how a person, if you charged him, would, uh, you know, would would uh, affect a jury in terms of what the person's uh, mental capacity might be. 
that goes to the importance of, you know, whether he committed the offenses that are charged, which we can talk about because there's a temporal difference between, you know, when you commit the offenses and, and how, what his condition might be now. But importantly, you know, a U.S. attorney, when I was a prosecutor for 20 years, and I was explaining why we shouldn't charge somebody when the evidence appeared to be sufficient, one of the things that you'd be expected to explain is we might be in a six-month-to-a-year litigation over whether the guy is fit to stand trial. And even if a defendant doesn't want to raise that, a competent defense lawyer would raise it. So you would have to lay that all out in the report. Um, So the report requires that the special counsel give this information in the form of the report to the attorney general. Then it's up to the attorney general to decide what, if any, portions of the report to release. And I think the, the thing is that we've had this wave of special prosecutors since the 1970s, and there's come to be a public and political expectation that these reports get publicized, but they're presumptively in the regulations, they're confidential. Explicitly what the reg says is the special counsel shall provide a confidential report to the attorney general laying out what I just described. And then it's up to the attorney general how much of it to publicize. So in this instance, that decision was made by Merrick Garland. I understand that there would have been a political firestorm if he redacted portions or withheld the report. But the fact of the matter is, this is a decision that Merrick Garland made, not the special counsel. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because I was on a show with EJ Dion, a friend of mine for a long time. He got very exercised with me uh, because I brought up the fact the president should resign. But also, he just is simply wrong about Bill Barr and the report that Barr received uh, about uh, from Mueller because he said Barr sat on it for three weeks and Merrick Garland turned it out. And we should be very. In fact, I believe that Barr didn't sit on it, but that grand jury information had to be redacted, that they had asked Team Mueller to redact it. They didn't redact it. Am I remembering that correctly, Andrew? No, that's exactly right. In fact, the Justice Department, you had taken a position in a separate matter in connection with Rule 6E of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, which which controls grand jury matters about whether and to whom they were disclosable and under what circumstances. And what the Justice Department was arguing was that you had to honor the text of Rule 6E, and therefore they couldn't just give the information to Congress. But if you remember, when when Barr did, uh, after three weeks, return that or turn that report over and make it public, um, first of all, only about 4% of it, I think, was withheld. And what we saw was it wasn't particularly... The stuff that was withheld wasn't particularly interesting. It actually was authentically grand jury material. It wasn't like they were holding back the bad stuff on Trump. Every page was bad stuff on Trump. Uh, So I don't think he withheld the substance of the report. But what they did was they had asked Mueller to go through the report and identify the grand jury material. He didn't do it. So they had to go through it. Yeah, I just want people to know that going in. Now, Andrew, in your opinion, did the report, the her report, quote, exonerate, close quote, Joe Biden? Well, no, obviously it didn't. I mean, you know, look, if you're talking to you about, um, you know, we think the jury would be sympathetic to him. 
then you're already, as a prosecutor, at the point of having decided that he committed all the acts that are necessary to violate the law. And what we're down to is we have sufficient evidence that we can get to a jury on intent. It's just a question of how they'll weigh it. So already out of the box, if you're talking about how we, you know, how his condition would impact the jury, you've already decided that he did the acts that were necessary to commit the crime. And then I think the report is flawed on two grounds, primarily. One is the special counsel, her, found willfulness, which is the highest mental element standard in the criminal law. The statute, 793, which is uh, the codification of the Espionage Act, it only requires finding gross negligence. So if you found willfulness, gross negligence should be a layup. I don't really think he evaluated it under that. It's like they it's like they pretend that provision. It's like doing Hillary Clinton all over again. It's like they pretend that provision uh, is not in the statute. And then the second thing, which I referred to a second ago, is this temporal aspect of it. Um, Joe Biden may be mentally uh, compromised and diminished right now. But the issue in a, in a criminal case is what was his state of mind at the time the criminal acts took place? So if he's a diminished person now, that's one thing. But if you look at the, the incidents we're talking about, some of this goes back to when he was in the Senate, which is I think he left the Senate 16 years ago. Yeah. Um, and some of it is when he's in the, the vice presidency, which I think he left eight years ago. So. We're talking about a very different Joe Biden at the time the acts got committed. Right now, his mental state may be relevant to whether he's fit to stand trial, which is a very different issue from what his mental state was at the time the acts were committed. Now, I, um, I want to play for you Bob Bauer yesterday on Face the Nation to get your reaction. He's asked by Margaret Brennan, why don't you just release the transcripts or the tapes of the depot if you're going to argue the president's competent? He responds, cut number 17. Yes, I'm drawing here on my recollections, but yes, there are transcripts. And as you heard um, Ian Sams in the press briefing room say, you know, there are discussions underway because it's a classified document about Mm -hmm. what could or whether will be or when released. I can't add anything to that today. Do you favor releasing them? Well, it's really a decision that has to take place within the government. It's a classified document. I'm the president's personal counsel. Right. Would you recommend that these be made public if they indeed back up your personal record? Again, there's a process underway. I'm not a specialist in that process. And so I really have to defer to those who have to work through those issues. Andrew McCarthy, your reaction to that? I think he'd be tripping over himself if he thought the transcripts and whatever recordings there are back up the idea that Biden's perfectly competent. Yep. You you know, I mean, that's just a fact. I mean, that defense lawyer is not affected by a personal defense lawyer. He's it's not relevant to him that it's classified information or that there's a process. If you think that there's stuff there that exonerates your client or backs up the position he's taking publicly, you're screaming for it. Yes. That, that, yeah, there are so many bad legal takes. Did you watch much commentary on this over the weekend? No, I read a lot of it, but I didn't watch much. Did you read Matt Visor's piece in the Washington Post? No. Oh, oh, Andy, maybe during the break, go find Matt Visor. He's a fine reporter, but he stenographered for the, the Biden legal team over the weekend and uh, their pushback on the president's mental competency. We'll come back and talk about that. Andy is going to be with me for most of the hour. Don't go anywhere except over to the McCarthy Report at iTunes. 
which I didn't know existed. Like other competent people, Andrew does not know much about self-promotion. So we're going to promote the heck out of the McCarthy Report today. And you need to follow it and you need to listen to it whenever it comes down. Friday's edition with Rich Lowry is the one you want. And I'm just basically recreating the highlights of it here. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back with Andrew C. McCarthy on this Hugh Hewitt Show Super Bowl Day After edition. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening this morning. Andrew C. McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, also with National Review and an author of many fine books, joins me. Andrew, over the last eight years, we've had four cases involving either classified documents or the um, False Statements Act. We've got uh, Hillary Clinton, who uh, is associated with Jim James Comey, though he's an investigator, not a prosecutor there. We've got Joe Biden in the Her report. We've got Donald Trump and the Mueller report and Donald Trump and the Jack Smith report. And, and we had Michael Flynn's case. Are the standards across these five cases the same standard when it comes to classified documents and false statements? No, they've been treated very differently. They, the, you know, Trump. Every bounce of the ball has gone against him, uh, and every bounce of the ball has gone in favor of the Democrat, including uh, you know Hillary Clinton in particular, um, just to show how different the standards of investigation were. In the Trump investigations, it became routine for the prosecutors to go to the court and get the attorney-client privilege waived so that attorneys could testify uh, against their clients and provide information that uh, the court said was uh, the attorney-client privilege was pierced because of what's known as the crime fraud exception. In the Hillary Clinton investigation, the Justice Department, the Obama-Biden Justice Department, consulted with the Clinton lawyers about what the FBI would be allowed to look at and even what questions they would be allowed to ask. There was a, uh, a, a deep hesitation to even use grand jury subpoenas in those investigations, whereas the, the Trump investigations in particular were handled not only by aggressive prosecutors, but like aggressive prosecutors who were hell-bent on making a case, even if, and I believe this to be the case with, with Jack Smith's uh, Washington prosecution in particular, even if they had to really stretch laws in order, to, in order to bring charges under circumstances where just last term, the Supreme Court, in the cases involving the two Cuomo cronies whose convictions got thrown out, they were very clear in that case that they want prosecutors to stop this creative stretching of, uh, you know, old criminal uh, statutes to new situations that they weren't, that Congress didn't contemplate when they enacted those statutes. So I, I think you, from soup to nuts, the cases have been handled very differently. And does that give rise to a legitimate concern? You know, the MAGA folks, the hardcore Trump folks, are convinced that it's a witch hunt and that they're going after Trump. And I, I have a mixed view and a very nuanced view about some of this. The obstruction charge, I haven't seen his defense yet, but that's a serious charge. I do, however, think anyone who, who would look at these four things, five things objectively, two Mullers, a Mueller and, and Smith and Joe and her and Hillary and Comey and Michael Flynn, they'd say, this is a mess. All of this is politicized. What happened to the Department of Justice? 
I was only there uh, for two AGs. You were there a lot longer, and you're an actual real lawyer. What do you think of the DOJ these days? Well, I think in these kinds of cases, it's hyper-political. I've also been uh, – I've always thought from the beginning of the Biden administration in particular that uh, Biden, encouraged by his base, encouraged by some you know left-wing historians, thought that he had a chance of being like the next FDR. And he never had – the margins in Congress that were capable of delivering that, uh, even if he was, uh, you know, an FDR type in, in terms of political shrewdness, et cetera. Um, but when you can't deliver legislatively, and this goes to a point that I think you're raising in the things that you've written over the weekend about the administrative state, when you can't deliver legislatively as the Constitution is intended, what a president can do is use these agencies, and the, and the Justice Department is probably at the top of the list, to try to pursue the things that you can't achieve legislatively. And that, I think, widens the ambit of what is politicized with the Justice Department, which is a really bad thing. We need a Justice Department uh, that, you know, calls balls and strikes and is not if People forget, when, when John Mitchell went to run the campaign for Nixon, he left justice. And yep. you've got to leave justice if you're going to be involved in politics. I'm going to come back for one more segment with uh, Andrew McCarthy. We're going to talk about Bo Biden and the visor piece. And we're going to talk about what happens next. So this is an utter mess. And I want to get Andrew's opinion on the president's competency to remain in office. I am of the firm opinion he should have resigned on Thursday. And because our enemies know exactly what her knows. And we all know. Don't go anywhere, America. Andrew will be right back after this on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Andrew C. McCarthy is with National Review, former uh, prosecutor for the Southern District of New York, written many fine books. He's now at National Review, and he has a podcast called The McCarthy Report. Andy, I did not know you were doing that. Like, you're lousy at self-promotion. How long have you been doing The McCarthy Report? Believe it or not, Rich and I have been, we started that in 2018. We went through the Mueller investigation, and it seems like, you know, I think we thought we would do the Mueller investigation and wrap it up, but I just feel like, as you pointed out the last segment, we've been one investigation after another ever since. Oh, do not stop doing it, because it makes a lot of sense. I want you to make sense out of this Matt Visor story for me. I'm going to read four paragraphs for the audience. Biden at times told her he had limited knowledge of how the documents ended up where they did. He was asked at one point how a binder labeled Bo, Iowa, ended up in a well-worn box in his garage that also contained sensitive government material. Bo Biden, the president's son, died of brain cancer in 2015. Somebody must have packed this up, just picked up all this stuff and put it in a box because I didn't, he said, according to Hur's report. Her later recounted that Biden could not remember exactly what year his vice presidential tenure began or ended citing that as evidence that his memory was significantly limited. The president's allies forcefully reject that characterization. At some point, the discussion turned to the year when Bo died. Her later reported that Biden could not recall the year with specificity. Biden has angrily denied not knowing when his son passed away, adding that it was not her business to ask such a question in the first place. This is the killer line, Andy. It is unclear exactly how Bo Biden came up during the interview. <laughs> Do you do you know how Bo Biden might have come up during the interview, given the first paragraph? <laughs> you know, look, I, I've I've said from the beginning of of this, since it emerged that we found out that the vice or the president had uh, these documents, 
I thought that the the problem he was going to have was that there was a rationale for having them uh, that, unfortunately for him, was illegal, but at least it made sense. And that is that he was writing a memoir about the interweaving of his responsibilities as vice president, where uh, President Obama had given him basically the big ticket on a lot of big foreign policy issues and American governance with respect to a lot of troubled spots in the world, how that intermingled with the uh, painful months and uh, months that went by while his son was dying. And, um, you know, obviously for his sake, if you're going to write a memoir like that, you want to make sure you have everything right. So I always believe that he had a lot of these materials because of that project. And it's totally understandable. Look, when I write books, you, you were kind enough to mention that I've, I've written a few. I always want to go back. I find myself researching things that I lived through because I'd be you know, painfully embarrassed if I wrote them up and uh, I, you know, got key details wrong. So I understand why he would want that. Uh, the problem is he's not allowed to have classified information in places where it's not supposed to be. And it doesn't surprise me that the special counsel found that he acted willfully because because he knew what the rules were and he had a conscious purpose to break them. Uh, the fact that it's like a rational purpose helps us understand it, but it doesn't make it legal. No, th- there have been a lot of documents cases. Two of them I want to add to the list I gave you. David Petraeus, who had to resign as director of the CIA because of showing right. a classified document to a, a third party who was not cleared to see it. And then Sandy Berger, who stole documents from the National Archives. The standard is all over the place. But under whatever standard that we've got, do you think the president should have been charged? Well, I don't want to cop out here. He can't be charged while he's president, right? Oh, that's right. You're right. No, you're you're absolutely right. It's very troublesome, though, because uh, just as an aside, you that rule is intended to respect the the awesome responsibilities of the presidency. It's not supposed to give the president a legal advantage. But the fact is, if you don't indict Biden and he won the next election, the statute of limitations would run and he couldn't be charged. So I've always thought that rule is peculiar. I think that you should be able to indict the president and put it under seal until his term is over to stop the statute of limitations from running. But I do think as a matter of law, he should have been charged. And it, it occurred to me when I did my reading assignment that you gave me and read this uh, visor piece at the Washington Post. Um, you know, in her report, when he when he talks about the things that Biden said, he quotes them like some yes. of them are, um, you know, like uh, when am I vice president? You know, they kind of sound peculiar, but it sounds to me like her is writing from recordings or transcripts, whereas this report from. Uh, visor at the Washington Post is clearly the spin of, you know, of President Biden's lawyers and aides. Um, but I, I think the way that report is written, he's going, he's painstakingly quoting what Biden actually said from recordings. And the other thing I would point out is that he gave this report to Garland, who had to decide what to make public. Garland would have been in a position to ask him, are you sure he said that? Can I see the transcript? Can I see? Can I hear the report? Good point. Yeah. Um, so I don't think he would have put this out unless it was a, an, a truthful and accurate assessment of what Biden said. And I also would just point out to people, it seems to me there was daunting evidence 
with which to charge you, or, or at least to recommend charges. So why do you think that her had it into this guy by simply making observations about the way his mind seems to be working these days when he didn't charge him under circumstances where he couldn't? That doesn't make sense to me. Now, now talk to me a little bit about, and, and let me say, I am a former ghostwriter. I have ghostwritten a number of books, and so ghostwriters are near and dear to me. I've been ghostwriting since 1978. So ghostwriters, I don't want to throw ghostwriters under the bus, but it seems to me this ghostwriter obstructed justice. And he could have been indicted, and they could have named the president as an unindicted co-conspirator as Richard Nixon was named because of the policy at OLC that you don't indict sitting presidents. What about the ghostwriter, Andy? He destroyed stuff in anticipation of investigation. Yeah, it reminded me very much, you of the Hillary Clinton situation where they had that guy who, who bleach bit the, yes. uh, the servers who claimed that he didn't do it because he was instructed, even though it happened like right after one of Clinton's aides spoke to him. <laughs> he gets the bleach bit out and does this. And he says, no, 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 this was all on me. I, you know, I thought it up myself. And, of course, you're talking before about the different ways these cases get handled. Rather than charge him, what did the Justice Department do? The Biden, you know, the Obama-Biden Justice Department. They gave him immunity. Yeah. <laughs> after which he just said, the, the same nonsense that he had told them. Yeah. Uh, I, I, how it, you know, <laughs> it's, it's laughable. So let's get to the most important thing. I am of the firm opinion that the president is impaired. I've always thought he was infirm, but that's not impaired. There are different words. Infirm right. just means, yep. boy, he gets tired easily. He walks funny. I don't know if he's on his game. Impaired means he can't remember what people told him. And that's dangerous, Andy. Do you think it is a legitimate position to hold? And tell me if you don't, that the president ought to resign. No, I think it's a totally legitimate position. I believe it as well. Um, I don't think, see, I, I, even though I'm um, a lawyer and even play one on TV occasionally, I, I think the way the framers set up our government, most of the important conclusions are political ones rather than legal ones. And the 25th Amendment is a political conclusion. You know, if the vice president and half the cabinet uh, invoke it, uh, you know, the, the amendment allows them to do it. But there's no legal standard. It's obviously intended for, you know, the Woodrow Wilson or, you know, if JFK had survived for a while after the shooting, that's kind of a situation where the president is totally debilitated. But that, you know, there's a difference between what you must do and what you should do. And even if there is some situation where absolutely you must invoke the 25th Amendment, if the president's compromised, he's 81 and he's thinking about being president until he's 86. I mean, are you kidding the way he's functioning now? So I, I, I don't agree with Joe Biden about anything, but I think he probably loves America. Oh, yeah. Do the right thing and, and step down. Yeah. So I want to close with this, Andy, in terms of, of the hoopla around this report. I have not seen any objective evaluation of it yet. Who do you think has done the best job on the left of being honest about the implications of this report? Have you seen anyone on the left actually assess this under the same standards that they applied into the Mueller case? Well, no, I haven't seen anything like the same standards, but I thought the Mueller case was um, was over the top. Um, I haven't seen a lot of good legal commentary. I've seen some good political commentary. I thought, you know, frankly, I thought Paul Begala's reaction yes. to this was, 
you know, exactly what I hope I would say under the circumstances, even if it was my guy who was getting hurt, which is that, you know, this is really bad. Yeah. Uh, I think Axelrod's been, he's been very straight on this uh, from the beginning with respect to Biden, and he's gotten a lot of blowback from that. Um, I, I What I find, unfortunately, Hugh, with um, with commentary, legal commentary on the other side, is that when you raise these things, it immediately devolves into a conversation about, like, what about Trump? Yes. And the thing is, I don't have a brief for Trump. I'm just I'm dealing with Biden now. And you were kind enough to, to mention our podcast. Um, I encourage people if they want to, you know, I we try to call it as we see it with respect to Trump, too. And so, he does not uh, carry the former president's water at all. Neither does Rich Lowry. It is this is just dry legal analysis. And the president is in trouble. Andrew C. McCarthy, thank you, my friend. Good luck in uh, in getting where you're going. I appreciate the time this morning. Follow him on X at Andrew C. McCarthy. Go get the McCarthy Report and follow it as I do. I'm very discriminating about my my podcast, but now the McCarthy Report is in my feed. Thank you, Andy. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. I think everyone's got to cut everyone a little slack today, except Dwayne. Dwayne treats me like Travis Kelsey treats Andy Reid. Right. You never see it because we don't have sideline. Travis Kelsey came off the the field yelling at Andy Reid yesterday. And I thought, well, he's been he's gone to the Dwayne Charm School and he, he was yelling at me uh, before the show. And now he and, and so he's just Travis Kelsey. So his new nickname is, is Travis. Um, but he went to D.C. this weekend and he took care of my studio. So I, I do want to thank you for that. And MyPhDWeightLoss.com is his sponsor. Do you know what the Travis Kelsey reference is, too, by the way, since you didn't see the game? Oh, yeah. I, I, saw, I saw a clip last night of him bumping Andy Reid. Yelling at him. Because he yeah, was, I said, there's Dwayne. He, he was on the sidelines of the Chiefs. He was a little displeased, apparently, about being pulled out of a certain if you, play. If you had hair on your chin, you could do the Travis Kelsey thing. Because he has a very short haircut, sort of like yours. Well, uh, he's a little bit bigger than I am. Well, I know, but... And you're not and actually, Swift, and actually, you... so is Andy Reid. Uh, yes, he's a big boy. MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Andy Reid would work for both of them. Actually, they would. It would be a help. But that guy, if he stays around long enough, can catch Belichick. So take care of yourself, Andy. Never um, bet against Andy Reid right now. 1900 That's eight six four six four four nineteen hundred. Did you have any conversations with anyone about Biden resigning? Are people walking around in D.C. stunned by the fact that we're led by an There's lots of people that are stunned, but I'll tell you, the most stunned that I was over the weekend, I went to an IHOP on Saturday morning, right? This, the one on the GW Parkway, you know which one yep. I'm talking about? Yep. And so we're sitting down, and in walks Gold Bar's Bob Menendez. Oh, you're kidding. I'm serious as a heart did he, attack. Did he play in a doubloon? Did he... <laughs> He, no, he started working the staff to get out of the check. You're kidding. Oh, come on. Let's not slander Bob. Gold bars Bob and a staffer, uh, I, I, I'm assuming he was a staffer. At IHOP. Comes in and sits down at about 1030 in the morning at IHOP on a Saturday morning. I just wanted to, did he pay in doubloons? I, I, was, I was looking to see if he had, like, you know, Cortez's gold. You that know, that, lead, he, that, that leads me to him. That leads me right into the financial report brought to you Doesn't by AmericanFederal.com. That's called a transition. AmericanFederal.com, I don't think they wor- will work with Bob Menendez. I don't think they'll sell his gold coins. 
They do not want to be. They should run away in horror. Yeah, I mean, that would be like being a party to a felony. But, and they're very, very honest, and they don't get sued, and they always deliver the product. If you're going to buy gold today, it went down 20 bucks over the weekend. It's at $2,035, $2,035 an ounce. So, uh, again, it's not going down below 2000 anytime soon, in my very non-professional opinion. If you're going to buy gold, use our friends at AmFed Coin and Bullion. If you're a coin collector like Bob Menendez, you can deal with them too. Well, not like Bob Menendez. If you're a real coin collector and you're not just taking bribes, uh, you can call 800-221-7694. 800-221-7694. Now, Dwayne, if I had been you, I would have gone over and sat in the booth behind Bob Menendez. <laughs> yeah. uh, AmericanFederal.com, AmFed.com, or call 800-221-7694. 800-221-7694. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That was Secretary Mayorkas saying he's got nothing to do with the border breakdown. It's not his fault. Congressman John Campbell, retired, joins me now. You can follow him on Twitter at Look Through Chaos. Uh, Mr. Campbell, did you watch the Super Bowl yesterday? I watched part of the second half and I watched the overtime because I was much more interested in the Phoenix Open golf tournament, which had two overtimes and therefore went up till about halftime at the Super Bowl. So I watched that all afternoon and evening, and that was very exciting finish. Uh, the guy I wanted to win came in second, which is unfortunate. A guy named Charlie Hoffman, 47 years old. I mean, in in golf years, that's like oh my as old as Biden, you know? That, that, that's yeah. older than Biden, yeah. but he can probably remember yeah, what his score was. Uh, Congressman, yeah, yeah, he you, did. Anyway, you, he, fin- he finished second, but it was exciting. So you, you've so been in business I, I, for a long time. I, you bought a lot of ads when you were selling cars, right? Yeah. Yeah. What would you spend $7 oh, yeah. million dollars for the drumstick ad? They, they did a, a drumstick ad. Drumsticks have been around before you and I were born. I have no idea how anyone came up with, oh, let's spend $7 million on a drumstick ad. Well, like I said, I didn't watch much of the Super Bowl, but uh, so I didn't see a lot of the ads. But one thing I did see uh, on a tweet from Advertising Age uh, talking about the car ads and Toyota was a late addition. They weren't going to do a Super Bowl ad, but they ended up doing one. And it, but it wasn't made for the Super Bowl. Almost everybody who sp- spends that much money for a Super Bowl ad, they make a special ad just for the Super Bowls because a lot of the exposure you get is on the media before and after, not just right. people watching it. But it was just a standard Toyota ad. And the reason is uh, the NFL called up Toyota late. Apparently they hadn't filled all the spots. This stuff doesn't get out there. And I oh. uh, said, hey, we'll make you a deal. We'll make you a deal uh, if you run an ad. And they did. And that's in advertising age was tweeted out last night. Oh, maybe so, they got down to um, drumstick budget. Maybe they were doing they, a reverse they, so, auction. Yeah, some of these ads, uh, well, we know for a fact that Toyota's was late, uh, and they basically offered them a deal, and Toyota said okay, and just ran a standard ad. So maybe the drumstick ad was a, was a you know, a reverse auction. Ad two or something. All right, let me, yeah. let me go to the big question. Yeah. Should Joe Biden resign? Uh, yes, I think clearly he, he should, but... That's not the issue. Uh, the issue is not what he should do. The issue is what he's going to do. And from everything I hear, um, that he 
does not want to be to resign or be pushed out because he still resents that the Obamas and the Clintons, which were and arguably still are the power in the Democratic Party, never gave him his due, never realized how valuable he was and how important he was and what he did. And now he's president and he feels he doesn't need to uh, kowtow, if you will, to what the Obamas and the Clintons think. So um, from what everything I hear is that he's likely to hang on, you know, by the his fingernails as as long as he can here, because he doesn't want to be pushed out by people he thinks took advantage of him. John, would you let him manage a Starbucks shift? <laughs> no, I mean obviously he is long past his prime, and that's that's clearly where we are. But as I say, you, I. I don't think it's that important what you think or what I think. Oh, it isn't. Uh, it's more. It isn't. What's important is what is what uh, is can the Democratic intelligentsia force him out? OK, he's going to get all the delegates, at least through Super Tuesday, because because those elections are you, know, you can't put new names on the ballot. This isn't like 1968, where it was March 31st. When Lyndon Johnson famously said, I will not seek, nor will I accept another term as your president. This is not then, because by then, in March 31st, by then, most of the primaries had not happened. A lot of the big delegates had not been handed out. He had opponents and so forth who were significant. Uh, but that's not the case this year. They've moved the primaries all up. A lot of them will happen earlier. So the question is the super del. They still have super del- delegates in the Democratic Party, don't they? Yes. Lots of them. Yeah. So lots of them. So the super delegates could come out and change things and pull him at the at at the um, uh, at the convention in August. My view is, is that they will be unlikely to do that unless they believe he's going to lose. And if they think because of all this that he's going to lose and they still believe that in May or June, then they will start orchestrating somebody else. This is just my intuition. It's not 80, I have no inside information. Eighty six percent, according to ABC yesterday, 86 percent of Americans think he's too old to be president. That is a cake that is baked. He can't win. And, it, and he, he might hurt us. Right. And if that's the case then the Democratic intelligence, even if he says, no, I don't want to be pulled out by you people who don't respect and understand what I've done and I'm fine and blah, blah, blah. And we've heard this. Uh, was it you or somebody uh, I read said, this is like um, having your grandfather who was a race car driver and you have to take their driver's license away. They, they, they don't want that to happen, but you know it has to happen. So you do it. I had to take my father's driver's license away. He was a car guy since he was 12 years old. That was not easy to do. And so that's what has to happen here. And but he is not going to give his driver's license up. It's no, they're going to have to, to take it from away. him. And I, 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 but I in the meantime, we're in danger. Now, I got to get to a very serious deal. You for a long time occupied the David Dreyer Memorial segment. Uh, this show is 24 years old and once a week. For as long as I've been on the air with this nationally syndicated show, I've had a congressperson who knows what's going on. David Dreyer did it for many years, chair rules. John Campbell did it for, what, eight or ten years. 
And then along came Tom Cotton. You passed the baton to Tom Cotton when you retired. Actually, Tom- I passed it to, to Mike, Pom- Mike Pompeo, actually. Oh, is, it, is that the order? So it was Mike Pompeo, That's who then the passed it to Cotton, who then passed it to Gallagher. <laughs> and over the weekend, Mike Gallagher, and I've been in touch with him, but I haven't talked to him, so I don't really know. Are you surprised because he's doing exactly what you did? He said, I've done my, I've done my turn, and I'm leaving. Were you surprised? Yes. Um, I don't know him well. I only know him from listening on your show. And I was surprised just because, well, people were surprised when I hung it up. Yep, uh, they were. Because he's, he's effective. He's articulate. Uh, um, all of us want him to stay because we think he's a good representative and he, he, he will help the country. But he has decided to hang it up. Now, uh, you'll have to talk to him and find out precisely why. Um, but if it's similar to the reason I was, it's, it's a frustration uh, that the place isn't working the way it should work. And somebody, I suspect he's somewhat like I was, is you go to work every day and you work really hard. And when you do that, at the end of the day, you want to see that something got done, that you moved a needle somewhere. And when you don't see that, it is really frustrating to work that hard sit and say, well, gee, what did I get done today? And the answer is nothing. And, and that's, that's hard to do. Uh, the other thing, of course, a lot of people are reading into it. Wasn't the case for me, um, not the year I, I, I retired, but is that perhaps a lot of people think Republicans will lose the House this next year. I happen to, if I had to put a bet on that, I think that's likely to happen um, because of the chaos of the what I call the moronic eight, who kicked out Kevin McCarthy and so forth, that I think we're likely to lose the House because of them. And if you're chairman of a committee, you being ranking member of that committee is not uh, not particularly attractive. We saw Democrats two years ago, a lot of Democrats who were chairs of committee resign because they knew or they retired because they were pretty sure they were going to lose the House. And they did. And so you're seeing a little bit of that with Republicans now. It's not a good sign. Mike Gallagher leaving. This is this is not good. It's not good for the Republican Party. It's not good for the Republic. It's not good for anything. But I did it, so I understand perhaps why he's doing it. I, I, I think you, you and I share the knucklehead caucus theory. Uh, I just think if you're a serious person and you look around at Matt Gates and Matt Rosendale and Bob Good and Nancy Mace and, you real, and Ken Buck, who's just all over the map, and you've got a thin majority and it might slip away, you might hang on to it, but it'll be a thin majority anyway, you just say... I've got to have something better to do with my time. And it's such a pain in the neck to fly back and forth. Even if Wisconsin is only halfway there, it can't be easy to get to Green Bay, right? It's got to be two flights, not one. So I just think we're going to lose smart people who have just had it with the Matt Gates knucklehead caucus. And I'm afraid he's not going to be the last. Now, Gallagher has not told me that. I'm just speculating. Uh, I imagine he'll say, I got a young family. I've got to take care of my, you know, know, the usual stuff. But the knucklehead caucus is killing us. Yeah, I I completely agree. And uh, and unfortunately, you know, people like Gallagher and and myself, frankly, you have other things you can do in life. You know, you, you, you have other options. You have things to do for the knuckleheads. Uh, they really don't. Uh, they, they've never seen a camera they don't want to be in front of. They, the attention they get is food uh, to their existence. 
they will say that they're there because they're so principled and that they're the only real people standing on principle, which is complete garbage. Um, Ronald Reagan once said, uh, I will... I will not compromise principle, but I'll compromise for principle. In other words, to make something happen, to move something in your direction. They're just no compromise, and that's what, that's what standing on principle means. No, that's what getting your face in front of a camera more often means. And, and it's very unfortunate that uh, the way things are today um, with social media, with the way people can get so much attention by screaming louder rather than actually accomplishing things. And that's unfortunate. And I, I think at some point here, the American public will get tired of this. And I, I've often said that people say, oh, Congress is leading the public the other way around. I don't think that. I think Congress is a reflection of what the public wants. Because the, the, we all get, we all used to be me, get elected every two years. You do that by being a reflection of America, not, unfortunately, not really leading America to where it needs to be. And at some point, I think the voters will go back to wanting serious people who, who get things done and maybe are a little bit dull. Maybe are not as exciting as some well, others. Well, you know, we've lost McCarthy, McHenry, and Gallagher already this session. That's like three of the top ten members. And so it just drives me crazy. John Campbell, follow him on Exit Through the Chaos. Welcome back, America. Bethany Mandel joins me as she does every week. Good morning, Bethany. Did you stay up late watching the Super Bowl or did you just say, nah, not for me? Not for me. I went to sleep so my four-year-old would fall asleep. She slept in my bed with me. That was okay. how I lured her away from her siblings. I, I've got to say that was a wise choice. I'm cutting everyone slack this morning because it went long. Uh, first question, Bethany, that is substantive. Should Joe Biden resign? Um, no, because I, he Kamala has no chance. So if we're, if we're talking just from a strategic perspective, no, he shouldn't. But, man, that that report pretty much saying he can't be charged because he is really very cutting for him. Well, I'm talking from a interest of the United States, not Republican, not Democrat, not independent, not political. Is it in the interest of the United States that he resigned? So, I mean, the question for me is who is in charge right now? Um, and are they doing a better job than Kamala Harris would do? Um, I think the American people deserve to know who's actually steering the ship, um, because I think we know who's not. Well, you know, if you say that, all of a sudden the left says we're engaged in conspiracy theorists, but we're not. We just know he's not running things. And therefore, no, I, I think he should step down because I don't think he's making decisions based on an inability to retain information. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it depends on who he's talking to, what his decision making process is. Um, that's terrifying. That's terrifying. Um, now, but I think that other people are making some decisions here. When he calls uh, Benjamin Netanyahu yesterday and tells him that he can't attack Rafa, and the, the New York Times headline is, Biden cautions Netanyahu on ground offensive in southern Gaza. How serious, with, with what, how much seriousness do you think Netanyahu or anybody, Gantz, anybody takes that in Israel? I mean, if they took it with any seriousness, it's gone this morning after two hostages were rescued in Rafah overnight, our time. So 
it's gone. It's it's unfortunate for the New York Times that that headline went to print right before two hostages were rescued because that talking point is completely out the window. They found and rescued a 60-year-old and a 70-year-old man in a residential home in the middle of Rafa in a refugee camp. I'm sorry, game's over. Rafa is open They have to go into Rafa. Uh, To me, it's like the, the analogy is cancer. If you've got cancer, you've got to get it all and you've got to go back until you get it all or you have no cancer, chance of recovering. Hamas can't be left metastasizing in Rafa, can it? No, no, it cannot. And everyone in Israel knows that and everyone understands it. And if there was any sort of thought that like, maybe we should make a deal, yada, yada, that is also out the window after the rescue of these two hostages, because these are the first hostages that Israel has gotten back since November. And it was because of a joint effort of all of the armed forces within Israel, IAF, IDF, everything, Shin Bet, everyone went in there together and got these two men out. And who knows how many more we can get out if this ground operation continues apace. Now, the U.N. and the EU's foreign policy chief, this moron named Burrell, they keep blasting Israel for civilian casualties. I understand there are civilian casualties and that there are innocent civilians who are hurt and dead. But this is the most restrained offensive I can remember, and I'm 67. Mm -hmm. You're much younger, but do you think I'm right about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, in the history of modern warfare, especially in an urban territory like Gaza, in Rafah, in Gaza City, in Khan Yunus, the fact that the casualties have been what they are is remarkable. And again, every civilian casualty is tragedy, and none of them would have occurred on either side had Hamas not decided to invade Israel on October 7th. All of this lays at the hands of Hamas. And, and I think la- a lot of people in Gaza themselves know that. Oh, it's it just it's just dry. Even the Gazans know this, but everyone in Israel believes this. Mm-hmm. So so let's conclude by talking about Netanyahu and John Carl yesterday. John Carl asked Netanyahu, hey, Prime Minister, does Joe Biden ever seem slow to you? And this this her report. Can Bibi do anything other than, oh, no, he's fine. I mean, can can he actually say, no, he's impaired? He can't say that. No, he can't say anything. I mean, think I think the best course of action for Netanyahu is to say that's up to the American people. That's above my pay grade right now. My focus is on victory and achieving total victory and returning the hostages. Everything that happens in Israel is everything that happens in America is the concern of the American people and vice versa. Everything that happens here is the concern of the Israeli public. Well, I actually thought Bibi did the right thing, even if he thinks he's lost every marble he ever had. You still have to look at the American audience. Oh, he's great. He's super. Because we're about to vote on $18 billion, right, for Israel. He can't say, no, that guy has lost it, man. So, uh, Bethany, uh, in terms of your people that you talked to this weekend, 86% of Americans in the ABC poll say the president is too old. Do you know anyone who doesn't think that? We're now looking for people who don't think that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always use my stepfather as my metric for the average blue collar Democrat. And he's been saying for a while, man is obviously not up and not fit for the job. And this is my stepfather. Love him to pieces. He said I was crazy for thinking this four years ago. So obviously something has shifted. Uh, obviously, he should resign. That, that Hugh Hewitt is asking everyone to warn Seth when I see him next. Should he resign? That's what people should be asking. Bethany Mandel can be read at X at Bethany Shondark. Bethany Shondark, because she will not change her name because she wants to annoy me every week by confusing the audience. But we love talking to you, Bethany. 
Welcome back, America. David Bonson is the founder, managing partner, chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. And I often have David on to talk economics and the markets. You see him on CNBC all the time. But today I want to talk about this book, Full Time, David's brand new book, Work in the Meaning of Life. And it's fabulous. David, good morning. This is the best day to talk about work because nobody wants to go to work on the day after the Super Bowl. Right. Nobody wants to go today. Well, this is true. Although if there's going to be one day people don't want to go, it can be today. What you don't want is it to become an entire lifestyle of Super Bowl Monday. Yeah, well, Super Bowl Monday is a great day to talk about work and why we are called to work. But I want to compliment you on your chapter on retirement. And you're so far away from retirement. I don't know why you even wrote it, but I'm not. I'm only five years away from it, maybe six. What, 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 do you, what are your key message, David? I have read Arthur Brooks is in here. Bob Buford is in here. But what is your key message? So essentially what I'm saying is that God made us for the purpose of work. The identity we have as human beings is connected to what we do. Uh, You're right. Even though I turned 50 this year, you would think I have a ways to go to retirement. But as you know, Hugh, I've been in a financial position to retire for quite some time. It's just that I find the idea of decades of idleness and dormancy depressing. But even more, I find it disobedient. I believe God made us to be productive, and that includes people in senior years of their life that still have something to contribute. And selfishly, Hugh, I want the expertise and the experience of older people with more seasoning, veteran experience. I want their contributions in the marketplace. I think this notion that we are to have a 30-year vacation at the end of our lives is hurting the economy, and it's hurting the soul of society. You're right. Full Time is the great sequel, although it's not by the same author, to Arthur Brooks from Strength to Strength, because it is actually about why work is important and how we are called and created to from a Christian perspective. You know, I had a a discussion this weekend uh, with why we're in a cultural crisis. And part of it is nobody says the gospel is true anymore. But part of it is you diagnosed it. People aren't aren't working like they used to and they don't want to. And that's a problem. Well, it's a huge problem, and I want to point out that it's prime working age men where the biggest problem lies, those from age 25 to 54, that we have right now the same amount of them working or looking for work that we did in the Great Depression. Okay. Wow. I mean, there there are, is three or four percent unemployment, so there's a very limited number of lack of jobs. There's a huge number of lack of workers. That's the categorical distinction between now and the depression. Is back then everybody wanted a job, there just weren't jobs. Today we have the polar opposite: a lack of workers, and it's not because they're seventy or because they're sixteen. Those are totally separate problems, but I'm saying prime working age men voluntarily leaving the workforce. It's a cultural epidemic. You also write in full time that the church has failed to address this issue. Indeed, they might be contribute. The church writ broadly, meaning every pastor, every denomination, they don't talk about work the right way. They talk about work-life balance, which is a fine thing to talk about, but they don't talk about sort of the redemptive calling of work. And you want to expand on that? Because I want every pastor to read this. 
Well, I think you're right. It's a good way to put it. They don't talk about the redemptive aspect of work. And I do this very ecumenically. Like yourself, Hugh, I have, I've learned a great deal from Pope John Paul II. I quote him heavily through the book, even though myself as a Protestant evangelical, I also quote heavily Tim Keller. Every good endeavor is created by God. And he did it before sin entered the world. He did it from the Garden of Eden, making us to be productive as he was productive. And he didn't talk about work-life balance. He talked about work for six days, rest for one day, a beautiful biblical paradigm of how these things ought to work. And I think through that, we get an idea of what life is supposed to be, what our identity is supposed to be. And then you build culture. You build civilization. You invent the iPhone. You do things to create goods and services that make a better quality of life for humanity. And and through all this, God is redeeming it to himself. It's a beautiful theology, and the church has gotten away from it. If I knew you were written about full-time, I would have told you the story about a friend of mine from my local church who uh, lost his gig, real estate guy, in the 2008 collapse. And so he went to work at Trader Joe's. Why? Because he went to work. I mean, you got to work. You got to finish. There is no reason not to be working right now. There are jobs everywhere. And people who tell themselves it's not good enough for them. I love the fact that you're a band manager, by the way. What, What sort of a band were you a manager of? Oh, they were very big uh, Christian music bands back in the 90s. You'd be quite surprised. I've okay. bands that sold millions of records. Yeah. You didn't tell us that, but, but uh, I, I'm look, curious. You, you, you know, your thing on the Trader Joe's example, I don't think people realize how many multimillionaires there are out there tearing tickets at Disneyland or checking you in at a restaurant because they just they exited their professional career, but they want to stay active. They want to stay involved. I think it's a beautiful thing. It is. And I, I think full time is a pay on to work. And I really appreciate that you wrote this. Next time we'll talk about investments. But in the meantime, full time available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere you buy books. Congratulations, David Bonson. Well done. Full time is what I am most of the time. But now I'm going back to bed because I stayed up too late watching the Super Bowl last night. Thank you all. I'm going to be back tomorrow. Thank you, Harley. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Generalissimo. Talk to you on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.